Um, I wonder how uh, how close you've come to being scammed. Um, you know, uh, maybe some doorstep scam, or I guess more often these days it's a phone scam or an internet scam, isn't it? Um, it seems to me that, that either they are getting more clever or I am getting more stupid um, because they can be increasingly hard to spot, can't they? These guys don't wear labels, do they, that say, you know, sort of scammer, you know, don't come near me with a barge pole. Um, they, they entice us, don't they, with... with uh, uh, smooth talking words or familiar logos or they try to dupe us into something that promises much but delivers uh, little, nothing. And, and uh, sadly, we've had to wise up, haven't we, about the, the reality of such scams. We've, we've had to do our due diligence, uh, as it were, before we trust what people are trying to sell us. Um, and, and it seems to me that, that this passage here um, is where Peter helps us to do our due diligence uh, when it comes to those who we trust to teach us, because false teachers exist. He's, he's shown us that in the first half of, of, of chapter 2, hasn't he? And, and they're not harmless, but they're destructive to God's people. So he's warned us about their character so that we're not surprised, verses 1 to 3. He's reassured us about their fate so that we're not unduly worried uh, in verses 4 to 10. And he's doing all of this because the purpose of his letter to them is that they grow in godliness, which which he knows comes, chapter 1 verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us. In other words, in, in the context of these false teachers that operate within the church, he's reminding them that it matters what we teach. He's warned them not to be naive about this. False teachers are a, a reality. They've always been with us and they're still with us. And, and he's given them this general description of the character, the fate uh, of the false teachers. But now, here in these uh, verses, he, he's getting specific He's kind of given us a, a more detailed description of what marks out these false teachers who were influencing the churches that he's writing to. So he doesn't kind of name names, but he does describe carefully what they're like so that his readers can spot the, the presence and the influence of such people in their own congregations. Um, he anticipates, if you like, the, the question from his readers, which actually might be a question on our minds too, um, that, that given that false teachers are real and they're destructive and that they don't wear labels saying spiritual scammer or, or something, how do we recognize such people so, so that we don't get scammed? What, what will they be like? What will mark them out? Well, Peter draws attention here, I, I think, to both the character and the influence of, of the false teacher. What marks them out and what outcomes their ministry results in. So let's have a look. If, if false teachers don't wear labels, how are we going to recognize them? Well, first of all, let's look at the character of the false teacher in verses 10 to 16, where, where the, the, the first way that we're going to recognize these people, says Peter, is by their arrogant blasphemy. Look at the second half of verse 10 with me. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. 
Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in their destruction. Those are pretty uh, pokey verses, aren't they? But I think they're also quite tricky verses, to be honest, to, to try and pick out uh, what, what Peter's accusing them of exactly. But it seems as though uh, they were making uh, slanderous accusations towards angels, what he calls the glorious ones at the end of verse 10. Uh, But that's made a bit complicated by the fact that these glorious ones are then contrasted with angels in verse 11. So so maybe the best way to make sense of it is to see that these these false teachers are are slandering evil or fallen angels, uh, something they're not entitled to do. So so not even God's angels, verse 11, who are both greater in might and power than those fallen angels, would would bring such slanderous accusations. These angels may now be fallen, they might be servants of Satan, but but that's for God alone to deal with. It's certainly not for these false teachers in their arrogance to, to pass comment on such things as the angels themselves leave to the Lord. It's, it's a bit of an obscure uh, few verses, uh, I think, not, not easy to unravel. But uh, the sin of the false teachers, and, and so therefore the point that, that Peter's making, that I think is clear enough, isn't it? That they are willful or arrogant, verse 10. In other words, they're full of it. You know, what, what audacity, what, what inflated egos that they would presume to pour scorn and and slander on on those of whom they know so little. What do they know about dealings in the angelic realm? What insight do they have into such things that they presume to make such slanderous comments? So Peter says, verse 12, they are blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant And and to blaspheme is to uh, deny the Lord and his truth. So so in their arrogance, with their lack of humility, that they bring slanderous accusations which amount to the denying of God's truth. In contrast with uh, with God's angels, verse 11, who, who despite being greater in might and power, don't display that kind of arrogance, but, but rather they, they demonstrate humility towards what God has said. In, in other words, they recognize that God is all-knowing, not, not them. They recognize their own lack of understanding in such matters, and, and so they exercise humble obedience to what God has plainly said, not, not arrogant slander. Did you see the point? And friends, that, that, you know the application I think is obvious, isn't it? Remember that Peter's warning here is about those who teach and influence God's people. And, and how, how many church leaders today seem to choose all too readily to simply throw away the teachings and the morality of God in the, in the Scriptures because they've, they've become kind of inconvenient truths to hold in the modern world. How easily it, it seems the unchanging word of God gets discarded when we decide that the the demands it makes on our lives are are no longer wanted. 
you know, I, I guess the obvious uh, current example would be in the area of, of human sexuality, wouldn't it? In, in a world where the, the prevailing culture sees uh, sex as, as simply you know, a, a recreational activity between pretty much any combination of consenting adults, it's really inconvenient, isn't it? That, that the clear, the, the unambiguous teaching of God's word is that sex belongs to marriage between one man and one woman who, who have covenanted themselves to each other in, in a lifelong one flesh relationship. In, in, in marriage, two people covenant to become one. And, and sex is the expression of that one flesh bond. It's the embodiment, if you like, of, of their unity. Now, of course, we, we shouldn't be surprised that the culture around us doesn't see, uh, doesn't see sex in that way. And it wants to decide for itself what sex is for and how sex is to be, be used. We shouldn't be surprised that the culture does that. But friends, how easily it seems some teachers in the church are, are prepared to simply unpick and, and excuse away what God plainly says. But to do so, Peter's point here, is to be guilty of blasphemy, of denying what God has plainly said. And and that is an arrogant thing to do because it presumes to know better than God. He he calls such people, look in verse 12, uh, like irrational animals, creatures of of instinct. That's, that's a pretty shocking language, actually, that he uses, isn't it? The, these false teachers, he says, by, by their, their arrogant blasphemy, they show themselves to be kind of devoid of spiritual understanding, like, like the animals are, just, just creatures of instinct who, who don't have a clue about spiritual matters, about arrogance and humility, about sin and fidelity, about judgment and salvation, about angels, you know, godly and, and fallen, because they pour scorn on them, that they, they despise and slander them but such people end of verse 12 are are on a road that will lead to their destruction and I I think he's got in mind here seems to have in mind uh, animals that are killed either for food or or maybe for sacrifice you'll, you'll notice in verse 12 he calls them animals born to be caught and destroyed which makes the point a bit of a chilling one, really, doesn't it? That the, the false teacher's fate, their, their ultimate destruction, will be every bit as certain and final as those animals who are reared in order to be killed. And he, he kind of backs that up in verse 13 by assuring his, his readers that punishment will be given, that they will suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, or they'll be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. Do you see? The, the, the arrogant way in which these false teachers blaspheme what God has said will result in them suffering wrong for their wrongdoing the wrongdoing that they have brought on God's people by their false teaching. Friends, the, um, the, the force of this just can't escape us, can it? And Peter wants us to see here that the complete intolerance of God towards false teachers. 
that those who would blaspheme and pour scorn on what God has said, those who would throw out his teachings in order to make their lives more comfortable or more pleasurable or more politically correct, God will not tolerate that. These people are destined for destruction. It's really hard teaching, isn't it? And and friends, the lesson for us here is that we must be equally intolerant of false teaching in our churches, mustn't we? Hard though that may be, uh, unpopular though that may be, we surely must recognize, as as Peter does here, that, that those who teach falsely are doing harm to God's people. And if we love God's people, and if we love the truth of what God has said, well, then it must make us contenders for the truth and and not tolerant, therefore, of of false teaching. So what else uh, does Peter teach us about the character of the false teacher. Um, if, if they don't wear labels, uh, you know, how else are we going to uh, recognize them? Well, not just by their arrogant blasphemy, but also, look, second half of verse 13, by their hedonistic desires. Have a look at the end of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Now, um, (laughs) don't let these verses put you off pleasurable experiences. You know, in, in his grace, God gives us lots of things for our pleasure. God is no killjoy. He he gives us a world full of pleasurable places and experiences to enjoy. You know, things that all of us find enjoyable, like hammock camping, yeah? Uh, Or or like smelly cheese, um, or or like hot curries, those those kind of things. (laughs) But of course, for the Christian, actually for the Christian, the deepest pleasure, the most profound pleasure is to be found in the pursuit of living to please the God that we love. Living as he's designed us to live for our ultimate pleasure and and flourishing. But it's not this kind of pleasure that the false teachers have in mind, is it? Um, the, the, The Greek word that's used here for pleasure, look in verse 13. It is where we get the word hedonist from. And and a hedonist, of of course, is someone who lives for the pursuit of his own pleasure and and gratification. Such such that everything else takes takes second place to him um, uh, indulging himself in in every uh, every sinful desire, every excess, every uh, abuse, just, just all things in the name of pleasure. And, and notice that their idea of pleasure, verse 13, is to revel. The, the word uh, literally means to uh, make themselves kind of feeble through indulgence or through excess. So, so the picture is one of, of sexual promiscuity and self-indulgence and drunkenness and excess. In other words, pursuing the desires of the sinful nature. And, and doing so brazenly, openly, because they're doing it in broad daylight. <laughs> In, in, in Peter's time, if, if people were going to indulge themselves in that way, they'd, they'd do it under cover of night. They'd do it in secret to avoid the shame of being seen. 
But, but here, these false teachers, they're without shame. They're, they're indulging their passions in broad daylight, celebrating them. So Peter calls them, verse 14, blots and blemishes. Um, as we'll see, at the end of chapter 3, Peter is going to call his readers to holy living such that they are found when Christ returns as people without spot or blemish. So it's, it's kind of easy to see the contrast here with these false teachers, isn't it? Far from practicing holy living and, and far from being without spots and blemish, these false teachers are, are living lives which are the very opposite to the holy lives required of God's people. It's quite a graphic picture, isn't it? But look, he gets more pointed in in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. And, And the focus here is on their sexual sin. Every woman they look at, they look at lustfully. Their their appetite for sin is insatiable. They never stop. And and by teachers living this way, they're a danger to the young and vulnerable Christian. They entice unsteady souls, verse 14. Those those who are um, not firmly established yet in the truth and and so are vulnerable targets for for being uh, seduced by their teaching and and by the the immoral activities that accompany them. Uh, You'll notice, look in verse 15, uh, Peter uses the example of Balaam from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Do you remember uh, Balaam? Uh, one, one of my commentaries calls him the prophet who worked for profit. Um, in other words, he, he loved to make money, you know, but by selling his, his blessings or his curses. You can read about it in, uh, in Numbers 22. And, and Peter here has just accused these false teachers in verse 14 of having hearts trained in greed. In other words, they're, they're experts in it. And and as such, they're just like Balaam, who worked for profit. And he's accused them in verse 12 of being like irrational animals, like like brute beasts with no spiritual wisdom. And and Numbers 22 records how Balaam was so spiritually blind that even his donkey showed more spiritual awareness than he did. (laughs) And, And Peter has also accused these false teachers of enticing unsteady souls. And and Numbers 31 records how Balaam is found to be encouraging God's people in in sexual promiscuity with the Moabites. So what an example this guy Balaam turns out to be of the sinfulness of these false teachers who who by their ungodly behavior are leading young Christians astray. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Peter spends just as much time, maybe even more here, on their sinful actions as he does on their wrongful teachings. And and very often, as we've noted before, these these two things go together. False teaching usually leads to immoral living. But friends, I do think we need to exercise some humility here, don't we? Because actually all of us are guilty of failing to live as God would have us live. We, We all still do many wrong things and and so continually need to seek his forgiveness and and this is just as much the case for those who teach as for those who don't that the, the struggle to practice what you preach is is a real struggle 
However, Jesus says of of false prophets in in Matthew 7, by their fruit you will know them. In, In other words, false teaching is often shown up by sinful lifestyle. So the, the question is, what kind of, of picture of the Christian life is painted by the lifestyle of those who teach it? People will learn as much from how you live as from what you teach. And this is never more true than when it's applied to teachers within the church. Guys, our lives, our behavior, our actions are under scrutiny And there'll be a huge part of our witness to the truth of the gospel. And and clearly here, that the picture of the Christian life that was being painted by these false teachers was both blasphemous and damaging to God's people. And, And friends, sadly, it can be the same today, can't it? We need only uh, look at our news feeds or newspapers to see a a kind of steady trickle of of Christian leaders whose moral conduct has been more than a match for their false teaching. In in fact, sadly, we've also seen teachers with, with orthodox beliefs whose moral conduct has been just as depraved. And clearly, we're obliged not to try and cover that up but to call it out, to condemn it. And friends, it will be judged by the Lord. But friends, even more than that, we should let these verses drive us, shouldn't we, to to humility and to prayerfulness that we may not fall prey to the same thing. Please pray for those who teach us, including me, that God would keep us humble before his word not presuming to know better lest we fall as others have please pray that God would keep the teachers of his word faithful and and sound in their teaching and that it would lead by God's grace to holy living that would glorify him and not blaspheme him that would build up his people and, and not lead them on a path to destruction So if false teachers don't wear labels, how are we going to recognize them? Well, he's shown us something of their character, hasn't he? Their their arrogant blasphemy, their hedonistic desires. But now, I think, um, from verse 17 onwards, he he shows us something of their, maybe their influence or or, or the, the outcomes, the devastating outcomes that their ministry results in. And and the first of these, you'll notice, is that their ministries are empty and useless. You know, like like the internet or telephone scam. Much is promised, but nothing is delivered. Have a look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Um, when uh, uh, when Esther and I were on on sabbatical, we were uh, we were walking in the Lake District. We come down the side of a of a mountain, 
um, to, to a place where the ground was, was particularly uh, sort of saturated with water. And, and as we moved across the, the ground, we could see why the ground was so wet. And, and it was because there were kind of underground springs. They were bubbling up to the surface. It was great, actually. You could actually see them sort of bubbling up through the grass. And, and I'm sure it kept the grass really, really lush and, and green, of course, which I'll bet the farmer uh, was, was very thankful for if there was a, a drought or, or anything like that. Because a good spring like that would be invaluable, wouldn't it, in a, in a time of, of drought. But, but on the other hand, of course, verse 17, a waterless spring, well, that's pretty useless, isn't it? And it's the same in, in verse 17 with, with mists driven by a storm. When, when there's a drought going on and the ground is, is dry, well, a good storm to produce some rain is going to be a welcome sight. But a storm that just kind of pushes around the mist, well, that does no good at all, does it? And, and, and this is Peter's point. Someone called to teach must be able to feed God's people to equip them for works of service, to build them up to spiritual maturity so that they can be effective disciples of the Lord Jesus. But these false teachers are useless. They serve no purpose. Why? Verse 18, because they speak loud bursts of folly. Their their words are hollow. In other words, they say nothing of spiritual significance, nothing to build God's people up to holy living, nothing to equip them to be about Christ's mission uh, in the world. Instead, verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And, and I think, again, there's particularly new Christians he's got in, in mind there. Many of uh, uh, the Christians that Peter's writing to here were new converts from paganism. So they were therefore quite used to living lives of, of sexual promiscuity, of self-indulgence. And these false teachers are enticing them by appealing to the, the sinful uh, passions of the flesh that they'd recently left behind to follow Christ. And by their words and by their actions, they were saying to them that these things were okay. They had freedom to do so. But this this so-called freedom, verse 19, did nothing more than make them slaves of corruption, slaves to their sinful desires. Do do you see the point? They, They promise freedom. But what kind of freedom were they promising? Well, obviously not freedom from sin and corruption, verse 19, because they themselves were slaves to such desires. And Peter gives us a a little proverb at the end of verse 19 there, doesn't he? For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. In in other words, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And and these false teachers have been mastered by by sin and and by depravity and by self-indulgence. And friends, there there are loads of teachings around today, aren't there, that promise freedom. But what do they promise freedom from and what do they promise freedom for? Because, friends, the Bible teaches us that we're only truly free as we come to know Jesus Christ as our rescuer and our ruler. And that true freedom is freedom from sin, not f- and freedom for serving Christ. And so anything which promises freedom whilst redefining sin or redefining Christ, well, it can't deliver what it promises. It's just a scam. 
So friends, there's a, there's a warning here for all of us, isn't there? Because none of us are beyond temptation. Which is partly why, of course, Peter's so concerned that we grow in godliness and wake up to the reality of false teachers. It's because their, their ministries are empty and useless. They promise what they can never deliver. Which leads us to the, the, the final thing that Peter wants to show us here about the, the influence of these false teachers or the outcomes that their ministry results in. Because not only are, are their ministries empty and useless, but verses 20 to 22, they're also unable to deliver. And, and we can see this because although they claim to be Christians, to, to be those who have, uh, verse 20, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So although they claim to be Christians, and, and they may well have a, a, a head knowledge of, of the way of salvation, yet now, through, through their false teaching, their, their immoral behaviour, their true colours, if you like, are showing through. They are, again, verse 20, entangled in them and overcome. And it reminds us again, maybe, of, of Jesus' words, doesn't it? In, in Matthew 7, by their fruit you will know them. And, and these false teachers here are, are, are being shown by their fruit not to be truly God's people at all. In fact, Jesus explains it further in, in Matthew 7, doesn't he? When he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say, what, did we not prophesy in your name and, and drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers and that's what we're seeing here isn't it that false teachers can show many outward signs of being genuinely saved Christians they, they may have good bible knowledge they might be gifted communicators they might uh, uh, show spiritual gifts but ultimately their teaching and their lifestyle will expose them and, and for such people Peter says verse 21 it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to have turned back or turned away from it. Do you see? And friends, that's so incredibly sad, isn't it? When someone we know you know, maybe someone we thought had made a, a commitment to Christ seems to have abandoned their faith. I, I've known several such people over the years, some of whom, to my knowledge, have still not returned to the Lord. It's incredibly sad. Were they, were they never truly saved? Have they just backslidden? Well, the Lord knows, and time will tell. But how much greater the tragedy is when someone who once knew, in, in their heads at least, the way of truth has now distorted it and is leading others of God's people astray by both their false teaching and its associated sinful behavior. And I'm sad to say, I know some people in this category too. Maybe you do as well. They've heard the, the life-giving message of the gospel but having heard it, they've turned from it back to the corruption of their old ways. 
like a dog, verse 22, returns to its own vomit, or like a pig returns to wallow in its mud. Well, Peter says, such will be their judgment that it will be worse for them than if they had never heard of Christ at all. Friends, that is so desperately tragic, isn't it? But, but it shows us that we cannot judge our Christian leaders and teachers by, by their appearance or by their following or, or by their popularity or by their book sales or by their TV channels or, or whatever it is. Rather, we need to judge them by their faithfulness to the teaching of the Scriptures and, and by the humility and the holiness of their lives and, and the lives of those who sit under their ministries. And friends, we need to take to heart the teaching of that little proverb there in verse 22, don't we? Do you see it? That, that the results of the false teachers' ministries are, are unable to deliver. They do nothing more than turn those who teach it and those who follow it away from the life-giving truth of the gospel back to the corruption of their old ways, like a dog returns to its vomit or a pig to its mud. Which, friends, is another way of saying, of course, that it's only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that can actually transform lives. Only his work on the cross and the Spirit's work within us can give us uh, new lives, new hearts and a new start. No other message or, or distortion of the true message, however well-intentioned it might be, can change our sinful nature. So friends, let's, uh, let's allow this warning from God's Word to, to both uh, wake us up to, to the reality of, of false teaching within the church so, so that we would do a proper due diligence on, on those who we allow to teach us and, and that we would also have fresh confidence to proclaim the biblical gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one that can change hearts and lives. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for, uh, for both the warning of this passage, but, but also the confidence it can give us in the true gospel of the Lord Jesus. Uh, do please help us to, uh, to wise up to the scammers, uh, rejecting the false gospels that don't deliver. Um, help us too to proclaim with confidence the, the life-giving gospel that uh, by the work of your Spirit can give uh, new hearts and fresh starts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.